0: Welcome everybody to this podcast, part of Alcohol Action Ireland's End the Silence campaign, which is aimed at bringing attention to the spectrum of psychological trauma experienced by children growing up in homes with parental problem alcohol use, co-presented by Mick Devine and myself, Marion Rackard. ACOA is a term that is not our most preferable term, but it certainly is widely used and It's recognisable in the four words, the adult, the child and of the alcoholic. We would be using that term through this podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to speak to you as therapists, who are the one group of professionals that ACOAs turn to, to begin their journey of recovery from the trauma of growing up with parental problem and alcohol and drug use. Mick, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Thank you, Marianne. Hello to everybody. Yes, um, Mick Devine is my name, and I have worked in the field of addiction treatment for over 20 years. Uh, I'm based in Cork, and I am particularly interested in families that alcoholic people emerge from and find that in many, many cases there was parental alcoholism, as, as there was in my own family. And so it is a particular interest of mine to present this podcast in the hope that our listeners will perhaps be counsellors or psychotherapists who work with the client group who emerge from similar family settings, but who may themselves have emerged from the setting of a parental alcohol misuse.
0: That's great, Mick. and And I, I agree that through both our own personal experience, And through our professional work, we have learned a lot about family dynamics and addiction, which we feel privileged to share with you throughout this podcast. A number of very interesting events have recently been taking place, all highlighting aspects of this very complex issue, which we encourage you to listen to and to view, including the new toolkit containing a range of resources, which are all available on the Alcohol Action Ireland website under campaigns. I know, Mick, you attended the launch of Silent Voices in January 2019, Yes, the founding campaign to this End the Silence campaign, and it was meant to highlight the impact of parental problem alcohol use. This campaign began based on the shared experiences of three of us, myself, Barbara Whelan, Carol Fawcett, all of whom grew up with parental problem alcohol use. And we are committed to drawing attention to this largely unknown adverse childhood experience. We are very fortunate to have Fergal Keane, BBC journalist, as the patron of Silent Voices. And Maybe you'd just like to listen now to a quote he gave on the day of the launch of Silent Voices.
2: I think the most profound personal impacts are a sense of shame, growing up with a sense of shame, as shame as your second skin. Uh, I've been conscious that things in your home were very different to the way they were in the homes of your friends. Um, And of wanting to hide. And the other big impact is grief. And and that's something that comes back to me more and more as I get older, is looking back on childhood and reflecting on what might have been instead of what was. Um, and And a deep sense of sorrow for that. And also sorrow for those, not just those of us who have experienced parental misuse of alcohol, but for the parents who were lost. To alcohol, I think that's the, they're the the preeminent uh, emotions um, that I take with me out of that whole experience. I think the key to me was actually coming to terms with my own misuse of alcohol uh, and seeking help through uh, rehab, through counselling, um, through the help of a very good program. Uh, which is part of my life to this day. Um, and so in, in looking at myself, I was able to look back at the experiences of childhood and to realise, I think, the critical thing is that no parent who is, who is trapped in alcoholism is willfully setting out to harm you. It's just this, this disease that spreads around it, chaos and shame, uh, and as I said, grief, huge grief for generations.
0: Just... Listening to that statement is so profound and I think so energised myself and my two co-founders giving us the will, the energy and the desire to reach out to all those who are having to manage the legacy that Fergal describes. I think, Mick, you might like to comment on that quote.
1: Yes, Marion. thanks. I was um, there for the launch myself and I think um what Fergal does is really um to name the shame of being from the family where there is parental alcohol misuse is what really takes the courage, because it's the shame that really forces this underground and forces us to remain silent about this. It actually brought me back, Mariana. I remember talking to you about this since... To John Bradshaw was another strong advocate in the field of, of, of ACOAs, Yes. And he visited Ireland. And I remember attending the RDS in Dublin, I think it was about 1998 or 99. And the, 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 the RDS was full of people who were interested in him talking on this topic. And I remember bumping into a fellow parishioner from my hometown. And we kind of bumped into each other and it was it was obvious what we had in common it was it was so on it was so unspoken that n- nothing needed to be spoken about it but we were able to overcome the shame and really connect as people who had had this kind of formation as uh, as little children and I remember the bond uh, instantly struck between us we wouldn't necessarily have been have been friendly with each other at all. And I remember, uh, uh, and I remember talking to you about this as well, that there were two other people from Cork at that event. And we decided to form a group in Cork and we met, we had three or four meetings and just the affinity we had with each other, knowing that we had had a similar formation in a family where there was parental alcohol was, it was such a strong bond, you know, such an intimate bond. Uh, that we had shared that in common.
0: It's extraordinary. I, I remember when I, you first told me that, I was just so struck by the the power of that link between you, that common shared shame, yes, yes. and secrecy, from a little village. Um, but can you imagine that happening all over the country if if there were such opportunities for people to attend? Yeah.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Thanks for that, Mick. It's it's a powerful example of why we're doing this i think because we want that shame to decrease and that secrecy to be turned on its head really there is a section on the website called shared voices people who have so generously and anonymously submitted quotes from their experience of growing up with with parental drug or alcohol misuse so we would like to encourage people to to have their voice heard Um, through admin at alcoholactionireland.ie. But Mick, through the pandemic, you and I began to discuss the possibility of developing educational topics on the ACOA family experience as we sifted through some specific topics relating to the range of issues which families are faced with, both in the act of addiction, but also the legacy of the dynamics and how people are impacted. Another main point of interest for us both was that independently we undertook long term study of attachment issues for the developing child and realize that growing up in a home with problem drinking casts a long shadow on parenting itself, but particularly on the growth and psychological development of the child. So our curiosity is helping us to explore these impacts. And each of us has written some articles from various perspectives. Make your la- latest article in the spring edition of Inside Out is called Ongoing Recovery for the Adult Child of Alcoholic Therapist. Attempts to Bring Certain Realities to Light, Retransference and Counter-Transference. And this is part one of a two-part series. Your second article will soon be available in the IHIP Autumn Edition. What was your sense behind, you know, the writing of the article?
1: Well, I think um, just in my development as counsellor and psychotherapist, I have been very interested in Margaret Mahler's separation and individuation process that each of us go through in the first 30 to 40 or a bit more months of our lives Mm -hmm. in our family of origin. And I was interested to track those four Mm sub-phases, the crucial role that the parent plays and the child successfully navigating those four sub-phases, and how the child's navigation might be impacted if one parent was alcohol uh, dependent. Uh, Because what's very clear to me in that process is that the, the child emerging from that developmental process with a stable sense of their own identity is overwhelmingly determined by how well the parents are. So the parent is really key to how the child experiences that process.
3: Mm.
1: For example, if I was to give one example, say the first phase of that process, we call it symbiosis. And this is where the child is born. And for the first, say, three months of the child's life, the the mother is hardly away from the child. And symbiosis, they, they call it a dual unity. It's like as if the two are one. And the child has no awareness of, of another. The child is feels that itself and the mother are one. And for the child to emerge from this, it's so important that the mother is available to the child, yeah. that the child is the mother's top priority, that the mother is kind of freed up from other duties or responsibilities like maternity leave from work. And so the, their top priority is to feed the child um be with the child, change the child, make sure the child is well. That's really the, the, the primary focus of the mother.
0: And I presume you're saying the dad the dad as well as is, is is equally as important?
1: Well the dad's importance becomes more prominent uh later on. But at this symbiotic stage, the father's role is to make sure the mother is free just to be with the child. And then the child gradually emerges from this symbiotic uh, uh, phase and begins to kind of wake up. Margaret Mahler calls it uh, the psychological birth happens then. So it's like the child really wakes up, really emerges from the symbiotic process after about three months. Now, if the mother is not well, and is not available uh, to the child in that way, then the child emerges from that symbiotic stage with a sense of all is not right. They're they're not able to talk, they're not able to think, but there's there's a sense that something is wrong, Mm. and the child will carry that with them. So if the mother is alcohol-dependent, or if the father is alcohol dependent and the mother is anxious or scared or worried, um, then the child in its mother's arms knows everything is not all right here. And we can carry that throughout our whole lives with us. It might go very unconscious. It might be very vague, but it does impact us in, in how we emerge from this separation and individuation process with a sense of our own identity. Mm. Now the same is true with each of the other sub phases, and I can talk about that if 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 time allows. But the main point is that the for the child to emerge with a stable and cohesive sense of themselves, they have to have a stable attachment with the mother. So the mother is playing a really key role in that bringing the child up, as we as we all know.
3: Mm-hmm. But
1: if the mother is is not available. For that to be our primary duty because of alcohol because of the alcohol use of her own alcohol misuse or her husband's alcohol misuse that that whole process impacts on how the child emerges from that and the sense of identity that the child develops they then take that with them throughout life
0: i so agree with you mick because my, my one of my first clients i remember was a a pregnant woman and literally gave birth without any visit whatsoever from her husband Mm. uh, while she was having the baby. And I began to see uh, subsequently, there was a pattern there. The birth of a baby was often a threat to somebody who's alcohol dependent. Absolutely. Because it's extra responsibility. Yes, There's a feeling of, I can't cope with this or whatever. So But but the fundamental thing you were talking about is is the bonding between mother and child, or even father and child, and the vital importance of carrying that inside themselves as a sense of self for the rest of their lives.
1: Yes. And we were both we were we both attended Stephanie Brown, um, um, alcohol action had Stephanie Brown uh, attend for a conference last October. Yes. And the, the the main point that Stephanie made that really is is like dynamite is that in the in the family where there is alcohol dependency, the alcohol is the primary organizing principle of the whole family. Yeah. And she had the vivid image of the family sat around the table and the bottle of alcohol is on the middle of the table and everybody is enthralled by the bottle of alcohol. Mm -hmm. So, the safe and successful upbringing of the child is not the primary concern of the family where there is alcoholism. The alcohol is the primary organizing principle. So, all the children, all the children emerge from this developmental process with the realisation that they come second to alcohol, that they're not, they don't come first, they're not prized above all else because there is an addiction there. And we all know, well, we know the nature of addiction, despite the fact that there are children there who need the parent, the parent's primary need is for the alcohol. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. And,
1: and it, everything else kind of organises itself around that primary organising principle.
0: Yes, and woe betide anybody who doesn't row in with that principle. You know that there is a, there is a sense of terrible conflict and a, a disharmony and and distress. Yes, if that is not allowed to happen, so that is what causes the rupture in in family relationships. And I think that's our key and main interest is what happens between the parents and the children? What happens between the parents themselves? Mm -hmm. What happens between the family and the community, the family and education, the family and finances? So there's a whole complete ripple effect all around from this. What I find just astonishing, Mick, is if you remember in November 2020, we held a CPD event which brought together three organizations on a topic called Rethinking Addiction, Perspectives on Individual and Family-Related Harms. So we had Addiction Councillors of Ireland, we had the IACP, and we had Alcohol Action Ireland. We had somewhere in the region of 980 people registered, and over 800 people attended on the day. Unfortunately, we thought of doing a poll right in the middle of the event, and the poll asked the following, are you an adult child of a parent or other family member who has been affected by their alcohol or drug dependency? And out of 593 respondents, 53% answered yes. Then when we asked the second question was, how would you say your life was affected by this? 15% said moderately, 31% said significantly. And forty-seven percent did not that wasn't available as a response. So my guess on that, Mick, is that an awful lot of people don't know to what extent they are and have been impacted by parental problem alcohol use. I, I suppose, you know, what you're talking about in your in your article is addressed really to therapists themselves as ACOAs.
1: Yes, it's addressed to therapists who may be ACOAs themselves, but also as a way of maybe giving therapists some insight into the client who might maybe ACOA and what and what uh, their formation may have been and how they are presenting their needs then in the in the um yes in the therapeutic setting. Because again Stephanie Brown is a real leader in this field and she would say the reason people come for help is they can't leave their family of origin successfully. Yes. Is one reason. Yes. Another reason is that they can't form successful intimate relationships themselves, and they so badly want to. And the third reason is that they have their own children now, and they want to do a good job at parenting their children. Yes. But they find that the family they came out of has impaired their ability to be in successful relationships, that they don't trust themselves to do a good job at bringing up their children. And that's why they they come for help.
0: Exactly. Mick, I suppose you and I are really committed to, to the education and information piece on this. And the reason for that is we know among our colleagues, both mental health colleagues and counsellors in general, that their training does not involve training around this issue. No. And th- just this week, Alcohol Action Ireland have commissioned some research from UCC It's called Understanding the Views of Professionals of the Impact of Parental Problem Alcohol Use on Clients. And this was a survey carried out with a broad range of mental health professionals and was launched, um, as I said, this week as part of End the Silence Week. 70% of mental health professionals receive no training on problem alcohol use in the home, despite serious psychological impacts nationwide. I think that says an awful lot of the need for education information Mm -hmm. out there and the presenting issues, because you and I have uh, a couple of American authors that we very much like Stephanie being one of them. But um, the person that I find very interesting is TN Dayton. Mm -hmm. She wrote an excellent book called the The ACOA trauma syndrome, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. the impact of childhood pain on adult relationships. Mm -hmm. And, uh, She points out that the following themes, which are most common, unresolved grief due to relationship rupture and what never managed to happen. Mm -hmm. Depression with despair, a kind of a frozenness as part of the unresolved grief. They're very heavy kind of points, Mick, I'm sure you'll agree. But um, I suppose what we're getting into now is what happens when the client, the ACOA client, either as an alcohol-dependent person themselves. Yes. And that's an interesting one because you are constantly working with people in treatment who, who may be, uh, you know, both ACOA and alcohol-dependent. Yes. So they have two issues they're trying to deal with.
1: Yes. It's true. And, and it, it brings in the whole area of the adverse childhood experiences, Marion, as well, that um, being, being a child in a family where there is parental alcohol misuse is an adversity that the child has to cope with. And we know from the ACE scores that an alcohol dependent parent is not the only adversity that children have to cope with. There, there could be the adversity that's brought about by physical, sexual or emotional abuse, uh, that's brought about by physical or emotional negligence. Uh, that's brought about by separation and divorce, a ch- child losing access to a parent as a result of separation and divorce, or or uh, incarceration, or or, or the um, other other mental health challenges of parents. So it's not just the alcohol uh, dependent parent that brings adversity into the child's experience. There's a there's a host of um experiences that a child may have to contend with yes but whatever um what whatever the ace score is the child emerges from the childhood experience with developmental deficits Mm -hmm. and bringing the child into the child coming for therapy as an adult then creates an opportunity for some healing to happen the developmental deficits and the the impact on the person's identity Can all go back into the melting pot if a therapist is tuned into how, if if they can form a relationship with the client, that a lot of healing of the this. Trauma, this developmental trauma, a lot of healing can happen, so that's a, a another main impetus for us to present this podcast in the hope that the counseling and psychotherapy profession can start to tune into how their clients might have been impacted by a parental alcohol misuse and how they can really be very well positioned to bring about a lot of healing for the client in the course of the therapy
0: absolutely Mick and Claudia Black, who wrote It Will Never Happen to Me, talks about the three golden rules within the alcohol family system, which are don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. So when you have a client in adulthood coming into you who has repressed and suppressed so much emotion, so many experiences due to dissociation, Sometimes, and I, I recall this myself, clients will sit in silence in the room because they cannot they're empty they're, they actually feel empty. there is an absence of experience there, and, and I think that that often is the frozenness because we know when when family members experience any form of trauma and We're very conscious that this is not a once-off trauma, Mick. This is a kind of the ongoing type 2 trauma, which is even more difficult because it is so normalized that the norm is to be in survival on a constant basis, to be on alert on a constant basis, to be ashamed on a constant basis.
1: And, And that this trauma comes to you through the people who are, you know, looking after you and who are responsible for your care. And due to their alcohol dependency or their codependency, then their ability to really bring the child up in a safe and and healthy way is impaired. And this impacts on the child.
0: It does. And, you know, our empathy is there also for for, for the spouse and, and the alcohol dependent person, because they're trapped, they're stuck. I mean, AA calls addiction cunning, baffling, and powerful. And, you know, it traps people of inaction, of denial, uh, and of of terror, because mm-hmm. That's right. um, the shame and the stigma, you know, and this is the thing, this is why these conversations are so important. Yes. I mean, working in the National Counselling Service, I, I saw so much about the institutional abuse and sexual abuse and what, Clients had to come through in terms of dealing with their experiences um, from society, from Mm -hmm. religious orders, etc. And here we're talking about the other skeleton in the cupboard that is, you know, is our society has just normalized Mm -hmm. heavy drinking, problem drinking, public disorder, and we should all be outraged by it in terms of the damage it does to, to our society but in particular to little children.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, I remember a, a book, make. I don't know if you ever saw it, called uh, uh, The Elephant in the Sitting Room, and everyone tiptoes around the elephant. Yes. And there was no better way of describing, you know, what children actually are faced with the behavior of the dependent person.
1: Uh, another big insight that I think Stephanie Brown offers is about the defensive adaptation that the child makes yeah the child realizes that top priority is don't tell anyone there's an elephant in the room you know the whole family is bound together on the fact that this is a secret and the child realizes unconsciously it never even needs to be spoken the child realizes that my attachment my belonging in this family depends on me going along with this secret i have to go along with it I can't say to my mom, why is dad drunk again? You know, it's not it's not okay to say that it has to be a secret. The child adapts to go along with this family where where alcohol is the primary thing. And so the child isn't belonging to the family on the basis of it thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread or that I'm daddy's little princess the child knows it's kind of second grade, it's a second grade human being, that the top priority is going to the alcohol. That the yes. um, If the client does make it into therapy, just the, the, the act of going into therapy risks uh, triggering all that trauma because going into therapy means going into a room with one other individual who has more power than you and that can be very challenging and, and triggering, as we say, in the field. Yes. So the, it's a brave client indeed who will go to counselling and therapy to look at this issue. But it's so important for the therapist to be really tuned in to the need for such exquisite sensitivity so that the client, as you say, the client just sat and had nothing to say. They just felt silent and empty. So how can the therapist sit with the client in such a way that it's perfectly okay for the client to feel silent and empty and have nothing to say. And if they can work through that, then the client might gradually get the courage to feel maybe this adult is different to my other experiences of adults.
0: Absolutely. And, but what really strikes me is the length of time that that needs to, to, to nurture that mm flow you know and i i often find myself wondering about therapists who say oh no that's too specialist an area Mm. um that's not for me you know i don't understand i don't do addiction or i don't do the impact of addiction i i I don't think we can ever have the luxury of refusing any client but it's so important as you say that we need that exquisite sense sensitivity Mm -hmm. Um, both for the spouses and the partners, because, I mean, we're here talking about the adult child and the the small children, but I often think about the partner, you know, the spouse who is left literally with a massive fallout because that other person, be it male or female, is usually picking up the pieces of the financial debts, of the illnesses, of the shame, etc. I, I mean, I, I often really do wonder about and value the fact that there are certain courses available now for spouses and partners, along with Al-Anon, because Al-Anon lo- offers people a, a steady uh, peer group with, yeah. with whom to connect. But you were referring there to the distorted reasoning that has to happen within the family system, because you know you're watching someone you love deteriorating and the need to protect that person. So Sometimes there's a lot of distorted thinking and reasoning within family situations to protect that that person.
1: You're talking about the distorted thinking, and I think it's part of the defensive adaptation. Yes. There has to be some denial. The child has to have the ability to not see what's in front of its eyes. What the family believes is that everything is okay in this family, but what the child sees is everything is not okay. Mm-hmm. So we have to have a way of distorting our perceptions so that we're not seeing what's in front of our very eyes. And this is what we call denial.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and um, and there's, o- there's other ways this distorted thinking might manifest too. Like the child grows up with an excessive sense of responsibility. The child feels, well, daddy is drunk. He's not going to make sure I go to bed on time. He's not going to make sure I get to school with my uniform. Ah, uh, cleaned and me, me, me lunchbox. So I have to take responsibility. We call it parentification, where where children are doing the parenting, and children have to take on an excessive burden of responsibility before they're able to. And also another another aspect of the defensive adaptation is the excessive amount of control mm-hmm. that a child feels they have to exercise, because inside they they might be very scared or even terrified, as you say, but. They can't let that out. They have to keep it controlled. So there's no place for emotions. There's no place for people to say what they really feel or what they really think. And so the character, the child's personality becomes characterized by a control, having a tendency to control. This is where the, the, the inner critic comes in, Marianne, I think, because for the family to succeed in being a false family there has to be rules and regulations that everybody is going to obey. Mm-hmm. So one rule might be when you leave this house, everything is fine as far as you're concerned and as far as this whole family is concerned. And the child needs a superego or an inner critic to, to make sure that they obey that rule mm-hmm. when they're out in society. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Kind of the tin hat on. Mm -hmm. How this family does business as a family. Everybody has an inner critic that says everything is really okay here. And if I don't think it's okay, it's because there's something wrong with me. And I must not show anybody that there's anything wrong with me. So my inner critic really forces me to put a happy face on Mm -hmm. or to have a version of events that everything is okay. And the inner critic is needed to kind of reinforce the whole false family story.
0: That's so well described, Mick, and it is reinforced perhaps by bullying that might take place as well. And the competition um, around social media, it's it's hard to believe how these children can survive with with all of this, but they do. And that's the resilience piece that is phenomenal. And by finding one good adult outside the home or perhaps a parent who, who is not alcohol dependent, is often the hugely protective factor who maintains rituals and who, who explains things in, in the child's language about what's happening. So in terms of that inner critic, I think that, that that is something that is so important to try and catch at an early age because once you're feeding your own mind with beliefs about yourself that, that are saying, I'm worthless because I'm not good enough, I call them self-limiting beliefs and, and mm-hmm. you know, the consciousness around how we all, I suppose, is part not just of the ACOA uh, syndrome, but it's part of living that we're all the time keeping a third eye on ourselves, judging ourselves, wondering, am I good enough? Or is that person better than me or whatever? There can also be intrusive thoughts or nightmares or, or sleeplessness or hypersensitivity, all these issues are to do with the, as you said, the inability to express anything Mm -hmm. because it's all inside them. And then the frustration just bursts and kind of there can be a a rupture in in relationships. But I think we we do have to really acknowledge the fact that resilience and self-compassion are two things that are vitally important to try and build with both children and adults. There are limited alternative treatments for ACAS, but self-compassion is a developing approach in counselling and psychotherapy. And the cultivation and helping clients to cultivate self-compassion in a particular group of, of clients is, is, is vitally, vitally important. If we can make it easier for people to talk and speak about their experience, and that's why in relation to you know, the junior cycle SBHE curriculum and, you know, the senior cycle curriculum, there's a huge emphasis on self-expression and knowing your emotions and being able to identify and partnering with other other students to develop really good projects on, on aspects of, of social care. So I suppose really what we want to offer today is some insight into the inner life of The child in school or the adult. And again, we could spend a lot more time on this, but we just need to acknowledge that we want to be able to encourage people to be open and honest with themselves around their ACOA experience in order to enable them to to not feel that entrapment from the family legacy, which is often holding people back, often in shame, and restricts and confines them as people Mm Once they begin to share, they tend to feel more open in their relationships with other people, even though they have a sense that there may be a long road ahead. I suppose I'm, I'm thinking back to the 1980s and 1990s. There was a center called the Hanley Center, which existed in Dunleary, providing psychoeducation and group therapy to, to ACUA clients from and from other mental health challenging backgrounds. And it offered a comprehensive one and two year program of inner child work and psychotherapeutic work. And it was a marvelous resource. I remember referring clients there myself at the time. But unfortunately, that center no longer exists. So in terms of silent voices, uh, I suppose make, we are committed to maybe continuing on with the work um, to try and develop educational uh, subjects uh, on, on the topic.
1: Yeah, there's lots we can do, and I think to bring it back to this podcast, Marion. And if we have the ear of uh, the counselor, the psychotherapist, we really want to uh, encourage them to really tune into these issues that we're presenting, that the ACOA is is contending with, and have an ear out for them in their rooms when clients present, and you're trying to develop a working alliance and a rapport. Uh, with them so that they can do some healing work if some of the issues we're highlighting here the counselor the psychotherapist can be listening out for that might be a useful outcome and we're also interested in in working with counselors and psychotherapists if they wish to explore more fully some of the themes we're touching on here
0: Absolutely. We feel we have still so much to discover and to learn ourselves. And the best way is to explore with fellow therapists who can offer a wealth of experience and expertise in the area. If you think you might be interested, we would like you to make contact with admin at alcoholactionireland.ie. And, you know, just also to look at the website and to realize that there's a number of PowerPoint presentations on addiction and the family from Austin Pryor, from myself. And there's Barbara Whelan's Aware Lecture on Mental Health Aspects of Growing Up with Parental Addiction. And there's mix podcast with the two Norries on Spotify. Please do find those on the website. One last offer we would like to let you know about is that because of the emerging research on mindfulness, compassion, Alcohol Action Ireland are going to offer an eight-week course for therapists beginning sometime in January, February. It's for clients, about eight clients, who have had already had experience of working in therapy but who would like to avail of a, a compassion mindfulness course. And we will be evaluating this course. We would like to thank you all very much for listening to us today. And maybe we can consider another episode another time, Mick.
1: Well, let's see. Yes, it's it's good to have the opportunity to discuss these issues, and uh, the hope that somebody is listening who finds that beneficial as well. And let's see where it where what the next step might be.
0: For further information on anything we've mentioned today, please contact www.alcoholactionireland.ie forward slash silent voices or forward slash end the silence.